Welcome to the Pet Grooming Business Podcast, where we give practical business advice to help you grow your pet grooming business. So without further ado, let's get going. is well and uh, has had a good day at work. It's nice and sunny here at the moment, which is nice. I'm here tonight with Becky Knott, who is a trademark attorney at Barker Brattel um, Associates. And uh, maybe, Becky, you can introduce yourself and let us know how you got into the industry. Okay, great. Yeah, so hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm Becky Knott. I'm a trademark attorney and associate at Barker Brattel. We are a specialist intellectual property firm with the main office in the Midlands. Uh, so I'm a lawyer by background and in terms of the kind of day to day for now, I help businesses and individuals to protect their commercial interests. Uh, the work that I do, I'm very lucky that I get to work with a, a vast array of different businesses in, in different sectors. And I get to help them with brand development, to secure their registered protection, and to influence their, their strategies that help kind of drive and support them. In terms of how I got into it, um, fairly randomly, in that I, I did English literature at university, and I always love languages. I, I kind of think the nuance of language is always really interesting, kind of the power of, of words. And when I was deciding, you know, coming to the end of my degree, what I wanted to do, I saw an advertisement for trademark attorney as, as a role. I kind of knew a little bit about copyright and what that was, but I'd not really come across trademarks as a form of protection. Did a bit of digging about it and then thought that it was a really good fit in terms of a, almost a commercial exploitation of English. So the way that I have to craft arguments, have to look at kind of the nuances of brands, um, took the job and never looked back, which is great. You so, enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, really enjoy it. We were discussing this before we went live, weren't we, about um, you, you can actually take cases to court yourself and um, prosecute court cases in court, can't you? Yeah, that's right. So I, I kind of was telling uh, Bill about how I've, I've done uh, an extra qualification, which means I'm a trademark attorney litigator, as well as a chartered trademark attorney, which means that I've got some kind of higher rights of audience and some higher rights of litigation. So I can, as well as operating in, in the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, which is a specialist court set up for, um, for, for matters in intellectual property, like trademarks, designs, patents, um, I can also do some, some litigation work in the high court as well. Uh, which can be, you know, bigger cases, a bit higher stakes. And just waiting for your big, your big case to come on, aren't you? That's right. <laughs> you have your big team of uh, what we call disclosure officers and everything behind you, and yep. your uh, all your paperwork into court. Keep me out of trouble. <laughs> yeah, be, it sounds like it's good fun. So um, basically, I asked you to come on to the group tonight because. Myself, uh, my wife, mine and my wife's business, we're a limited company. We've been going for 16 years. Uh, we have our name, we have our logo, we have our um, internet, um, our website and everything around our name. But we've never looked at trademarking. And when I started this group, we started to get um, 
quite a few people sort of popping into the group and just saying, how do I trademark my name? How I've just set up my, my business. What do I do to protect my name? Because obviously there is a lot of dog groomers in the UK and all around the world. And so people do come across each other's names now and then. And we, there are issues within the industry where people do sound the same or have similar names. But I thought if we can just start off with the very, very basics so we can all get a, a handle on, on what it is and understand it. So if we start on, like, what is intellectual property? What's that? Yep. So that that's a great place to start. Um, so intellectual property or IP, as I'm probably going to end up referring it to, because just that's always what it gets shortened to. Um, it is obviously something I'm very familiar with, but not everybody will be. So um, obviously apologies to anyone who already knows, but uh, we'll just give a kind of brief outline. So the legal definition of IP will refer to a right that can be enforced through the court to protect your ideas, information and knowledge, which is quite a nice, neat definition, but not maybe super useful for kind of just us so maybe a better definition or a better way of thinking about it would be that it is a monopoly right that can be commercialized to generate revenue or to achieve other goals it's property it can be valued and it can be listed as an asset on company accounts or it could be bought and sold famous example of ip that i think we'll all be familiar with would be the coca-cola logo and the kind of secretly guarded recipe that it has. So your your IP is, is going to be an asset of great commercial value and it can be used to generate revenue. In real terms, um, it refers to any creation of the mind that can be protected and commercialized. And we've got some main categories, which I dropped in a few earlier when I was explaining about what I do. We've got trademarks, copyright, registered designs, and unregistered designs, patents, plant breeders' rights, which are a little bit rarer, and uh, confidential information and trade secrets. To, to maybe just whiz through a kind of brief elaboration of those categories, mm. trademarks are roughly equivalent to brands. So they'll encompass symbols, names, logos, images used in trade. Patents, we tend to think of them as commonly linked to inventions. They're typically physical things such as products, machinery, improved methods. Copyright, that can protect literary and artistic words, which is hopefully fairly self-explanatory, protecting things like books, training manuals, graphics, logos as well. Design rights will protect how an article looks rather than how it works. And trade secrets, things like know-how and confidential information will include knowledge of formulae, procedures, methods, future ideas, which can provide a competitive advantage. So going back to Coca-Cola, they've managed to keep that formula for their drink secret for over 100 years, which is fairly impressive. <laughs> to um, maybe just give a real-life example of those different types of, of IP, lots of us have an iPhone or you know something like an iPhone. If you take a look at it, um, it's host to, to lots of different types of IP. So trademarks, we've got the Apple logo on the back, got the word iPhone, and you've got all the app names, uh, which are generally on the phone as well, like iTunes, Google, FaceTime, lots of them. You've got the design, so the shape of the phone. I think Samsung had a big fight with Apple about those rounded corners. And you've also got the design of the app images in the phone itself patents 
you've apparently got well over 100 patents uh, protected within the iPhone, and that's not including third-party patents relating to just apps that you can get on the phone. Some of those relate to the software. So we've got a touchscreen technology, the swipe on, screen brightness, and patents in the hardware, so things like the camera. And then you can get copyright as well in the source code that runs those apps, as well as in the user manual. So basically IP is everywhere and many different objects have lots of different types of IP. So all that IP must be stored somewhere? Is it on a big register or, and how do they describe it? Do they, I suppose in the old, old days, they probably would have described it in writing, but now they must take photos and uh, images of what you're sort of protecting, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. So the, there are lots of different types of registers if you've got a registered form of intellectual property. Um, trademarks, there's a specific trademark register. How you protect it is you have um, an entry which will show exactly what it is that you've protected, which will kind of go into a little bit more about the different types of that with trademarks as we keep chatting. But, you know, if you had a, a word, for instance, you'd have that name, you'd have it listed, what it was protected for and who owns it. And that's kind of all searchable on, on the UK Trademark Office if we're talking about just the UK or the EU Intellectual Property Office if we're talking about EU trademark rights. Designs, um, again, you've got similar registers and that will show you different images of the design itself. Those are really important for defining what it is that your design protects. And you have to be very exact with how you, you register it because um, sometimes people think, oh, great, I'll just take some photos of my design and upload those. The thing is that that image defines everything. So if you've got a photo and you've got something random in the background, that's part of your design. If you've got the photo and it's in color, the color forms part of your design. And it depends kind of how new or novel and, and kind of how out there your design is. But if you've got something that is very new, hasn't been done before, what you really want to do is, is protect it with a line drawing so that if somebody comes along and they, they try and get very close to you, that kind of comparison of the two can be done in your favour. So if you've got a photograph in colour and they do it in a different colour, that could be a problem. That could be different enough to, to make it hard for you to take action against it. Whereas if you've got a line drawing and they come up and they, they start doing it in a different color, you've got that, that black and white version. You've got wider protection that can stop them. And then patents, similarly, you, you might have images. You, you have a very long list of what we call claims, which will define the scope of the patent, which are you know horrendously complex sometimes. <laughs> it can stretch to many, many pages. And then copyright is a bit of an anomaly in that we don't typically, at least in the UK, we don't have a register. You can register your copyright in places like the US, mm. but um, otherwise it, it's kind of down to when you, you designed or kind of when you created your, your copyright work and um, proving that. So the thing we tend to say for people who want to make sure that they've got a good handle on their copyright is keep good records. So if you're doing something online, um, version control is your friend because that will show exactly how you've developed something and when. Uh, people sometimes talk about posting a work to yourself so you've got the postmark and mm -hmm. keeping the envelope sealed. You know, not, not like a bad idea, won't do you any harm, but I think more if you can keep kind of dated records with version control or something like that, it's just going to be a bit easier for you.
Yeah. So we're obviously a group of um, pet professionals, so um, dog groomers, there may be some um, people that supply services to pet groomers, and there may be some dog walkers and uh, pet sitters and stuff in the group. So how, what do we need to be concerned about when it comes to our businesses and what do we need to protect? Yep. So probably trademarks are going to be the, the key ones for you. So protecting that name. Um, you might have things like design rights if, if you were kind of offering any particular product, but that seems less likely for, for you guys and what you're doing. Um, patents aren't going to be um, likely to be an issue. And you might have copyright if you've designed any logos. So something, um, I'll go into trademarks in a bit of detail, but just a quick one on copyright. Something to be aware of is that um, one of the things about copyright is that when you create it, he who creates it owns it. So if you get a freelancer to design your logo, mm-hmm. technically, unless the terms and conditions set out you know, in another situation, that freelancer will own the copyright in your own in your logo, which, you know, as long as you're on friendly terms, not a problem. But generally best to just get it tied up and get it transferred over to you. You can do that either in the terms and conditions or a company such as us can draw up a short form uh, transfer agreement or an assignment document is what we call it to just make sure that ownership of that lies with you. And that's important for trademarks because a trademark can be attacked on the basis of copyright. So if you filed your logo and then you had a falling out with somebody who owned the copyright in your logo, that could be a problem. And, you know, usually won't be. But again, just good to get all those those loose ends tied up just so you own all your... Yeah, so a lot of people probably go to the market to get their logo done. They might go to um, people per hour or they might outsource it to those kind of websites. Do you have issues with those? Do they normally have these terms and conditions? That's that's not something I would probably ask about. Yeah, so I I kind of... I'm, I'm often not involved when the person's getting the, the trademark or the logo designed itself. Hmm. Um, I can say that there's been a mix. I've, I've come across um, instances where people have had, had things designed online and it, it does make provision for that copyright to go over to the person. I've had instances where it doesn't. And again, then that's not necessarily a problem because we can draw something up that will do that instead. But obviously the easiest thing for you is if it says in the terms and conditions you own it, great sorted you don't have to worry about incurring another cost or getting a lawyer involved to draw anything up so i think the best thing to do is just read those terms and conditions carefully and just think about copyright and that ownership point yeah and is that something um we need to consider when we're having our websites designed uh so i got a copywriter to write my website does she own that copy or do i own that copy and it's not again it's something that i've not discussed with her she might actually yeah. be watching um kirsty <laughs> um yeah is it something i needed to have that discussion and just get that in writing from her yeah so again that that potentially unless it is you've got anything saying otherwise then potentially yes um the the kind of copywriter will own the copyright in that text i mean again it's not usually a problem if there's a kind of friendly relationship which you know i'm assuming if she's watching or potentially watching but it's just good to get the kind of odds and ends tidied up um so probably a good thing to go and have a look if there is anything in writing otherwise um you can always give us a shout yeah, brilliant. And I just made a note about um, the, not trademarks, what was the next one down? Um, Designs? Paint, or painting? 
Um, yeah. so and I do know there's people within the group um, who make shampoos uh, or they um, maybe they rebrand shampoos or they have shampoos made for them or they also make um, products to assist groomers within their um, daily life. So uh, maybe perhaps we can talk a little bit about patents because it might help them uh, maybe a bit later if that's okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, um, full disclosure, my knowledge of patents is limited as I'm a trademark attorney, not a patent attorney. So I kind of have, have very basics, but I would um, always refer to one of my colleagues. But, you know, we have many patent attorneys at Barker Patel who can help. Um, but, you know, if you are designing something that is kind of new or novel and it, it's got um, what we call an inventive step, so it's, it's something that's kind of not, not obvious, then it, it's possible there could be something patentable in there. Something to be aware of with patents, which also applies to designs, is that um, when you put so. The, the kind of newness or novelty of, of a patent or a design is assessed against um, what's already in the field or what we call the prior art. So if you have something that you think could be protectable by a patent, don't disclose it. You need to keep it secret until you've got it, kind of that patent application in process. So um, if you're, for instance, maybe going to a manufacturer and you're looking to, to kind of have some talks about potentially then helping you launch that product, you might want to think about getting some non-disclosure agreements in place hmm. uh, just so they can't put it out there. You can keep those details secret. But what you should do really is talk to a patent attorney. If you think that you've got something and you haven't put it out in the market or even if maybe you have, but it, it's slightly different, get some advice about it. Um, yeah. because your own disclosure can count against you in terms of the protections. That's that's a frustrating thing. Designs, there's a, a kind of what we call a grace period of a year where you've put something in the marketplace, you might still be able to register and claim the benefit of that, that protection. But the clock is ticking, but patents, it's a lot stricter. Um, so that's just something to be aware of. And um, if you were creating a shampoo with your products with your ingredients fall under a patent then so recipes are protectable by copyright um <laughs> which is is kind of fun um patents that is an interesting one i think if there was potentially some kind of chemical formulation that was new hmm. possibly um but that would be something that you'd need to discuss with with a patent attorney because um, that's what they do. It has to, yeah, it's what they do. It would have to be that that fulfill that test of novelty and um, kind of a, an inventive step as well. Okay, well, I've kind of taken us away from. Um, I'm using my own brain to sort of lead off into different directions. So that's no, good. Kind of branch out. Let's bring it back to trademark. So we, we're all we're pet groomers. We've started our business. We've got we've all got fancy logos, and yep. we've we've spent hours and hours thinking up a name and think, yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant name. So um, we're just about ready to get our logo out there, launch our websites, get our name out there. What do we need to do when it comes to trademarking, and how does that protect our business or how name? Yeah. So. A trademark can be, like you said, a logo, can be a name. Um, your branding is going to be anything that connects you to your customers and which is representative of, of your trading goodwill or your reputation. And then what really differentiate you 
from your competitors and ensure that your customers will return to you time and time again and encourage other customers to do the same through recommendations and word of mouth. And those trademarks are kind of identifiable, registrable elements that protect your brand. So like I said, it's kind of nice and easy when you've got um, a name or a logo, letters, acronyms, potentially even numbers, personal names. But you can even have uh, weird and wonderful kind of less conventional indicators of origin, such as slogans. So a little while ago, Specsavers, you might have heard it was in the news. Um, they were applying to register should have. You can get shapes, colours sounds or even smells which um were a little bit more successful in the past you had i think the two famous examples are the smell of bitter beer for darts and the smell of freshly cut uh, grass for tennis balls which were previously registered but um offices are a bit stricter now which is kind of fair maybe because it's quite difficult to see how a smell is going to communicate origin to the consumer and allow you to kind of go oh that smell that's that business um so really with you talking about kind of what it is that you should be do doing what you should be thinking about kind of what what should you do before you choose a trademark well if you're going to develop your kind of your super brand you want to try and come up with a trademark which is protectable by way of registration and there are a number of legal criteria that you need to consider so one of the, the kind of biggest ones is it can't be descriptive of the goods or services which you're going to offer. So you wouldn't be able to, to register grooming, for instance, for dog grooming services or dogs, because um, by registering your mark, the general rule is that you're going to have the right to prevent use of that mark or something that's similar in the territory where you've registered it which means that you can stop somebody else from using your mark or something that's too close to your mark, which is great, but means that's why you can't protect things that are descriptive because they need to be free for everybody to use in the interest of fair competition. Yeah, so this is like um, common words. So within our industry, dog and grooming is a common word, so that wouldn't be eligible for trademarking, would it? That's right. And even when you maybe have it built up in a in a kind of registrable trademark, um, there's sometimes when you come to enforce it, it might mean that you can't enforce a particular element. Sometimes, say for instance, you registered dog grooming with a really distinctive logo, so something that was very kind of eye-catching and, and then legally protectable, you'd be able to stop somebody from using that logo. But if they use dog grooming, you wouldn't be able to say, well, I've got a registration that incorporates the words dog grooming therefore I can stop you they'd have to be using something that was close to that logo as well yeah so there's kind of a little bit of, of kind of trickiness sometimes for people when they maybe registered something like that and then think that that entitles them to to stop people from using anything similar who who decides what is a common word because obviously the the English language has developed over the years hasn't it so we've gone on to dogs with a z sort of thing or um poor or things like that that who decides what has actually become a common word do they look at how much how many times it's used or so probably not that scientific I'm afraid um basically in terms of the process when you've got your trademark application first of all um you file it and then the office will examine it. So you just get, there's, there's a new port, you've got an office of trademark examiners who will take a look and they will examine it for the registrability, so for that legal criteria. They might do a search or they might just say, you know what, that seems to me that it describes it because the, the 
test, the legal test is basically that um, there's an obvious link. So they'll look at what you've applied for. They'll look at the mark. Like I said, sometimes they'll do some Googling. So you can sometimes get pages in the examination report of kind of different hits from Google. The EU office is a much bigger fan of doing that. Um, but it might just be that the examiner says, this is my opinion. And then you, if you have an objection like that raised, there are things that you can do. So you can um, file arguments or have a hearing, first of all, which is something that will you know, advise clients. So you might say, I think this objection is a bit unfair. We might want to have a go at this. Or you might say, mm, no, I think we're not going to get anywhere with this. Obviously, we can have a go if you'd like, but I don't think the chances are good. But unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately not. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not something we do, unfortunately. So it kind of, um, that's why we have to try and weigh up that risk for clients and say, you know, you might not want to spend the money doing that, but you could try and do the arguments. Sometimes that works and you're able to get over the hurdle or sometimes the examiner will, will kind of maintain that objection, but you might have built up something called unregistered or kind of be linked to unregistered rights. You might have been using it for so long that you built up something called acquired distinctiveness, which is basically when you've educated the consumer into viewing your mark as a trademark, even if it's got a descriptive meaning. Um, that is something that is can be very useful if you've got a brand that you have been using for a long time. And, you know, obviously you're now very, very kind of fond of it. You, you've now built up that reputation under it. You don't want to rebrand and, and if you've been going for 20 years or something and then suddenly go, well, now I want to register it. Um, the thing to bear in mind is that that requires evidence, which is expensive because you end up getting someone like us to draft witness statements, to follow the annexes. I mean, I've done it before when we had an actual crate of evidence, which took a very long time to go through. Um, and also has the effect that when you have a trademark that's got descriptive elements, a bit like I was mentioning before, when you have that logo and maybe you can't stop them using the words, you might have got a trademark through to registration on the base of acquired distinctiveness, but you might have a narrower scope of protection, which means that somebody using something that you can stop, it might have to be much closer because um, that acquired distinctiveness doesn't then give you carte blanche to just kind of stop everybody and anybody using something descriptive. And if somebody is using it in a truly descriptive sense, you might not be able to stop them either as that might be a defense to infringement. So basically, if you're choosing a mark and you're going from the get-go, the stronger the better, because that will just make your life easier in terms of enforcement and hopefully not getting any objections as you, you actually file it, because then that's going to just be cheaper and quicker for you. Okay, so let's think about um, our own business, A to Z Animal Care. So it's A hyphen Z Animal Care. Um, we would be able to trademark it as a whole. But we would probably wouldn't be able to trademark the care, would we, or animal? Trademark the phrase? Yeah, so you wouldn't be able to register, for instance, animal or animal care. That mm -hmm. you wouldn't wouldn't be able to get anywhere with that. Um, you probably would be able to get A to Z animal care as a whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's again possible that the office could say, mm, I think this means that you're kind of you're offering lots of different items of care. You've got, you know, you're going through the whole kind of scenario of the alphabet um and that's kind of re 
offering a, a positive connotation. Um, but I think there'd be some arguments that we could make if they were to raise such an objection. And what you could do to kind of reduce the chance of you getting an objection would be to file with the logo or file in the stylized font, um, you know, do things like that. But you certainly wouldn't be able to just kind of get A to Z or animal care on their own. But that hole might be enough to kind of take you over the line. But then obviously, if somebody was using, I don't know, Bill's animal care, you probably wouldn't be able to stop them from doing that because it would be sufficiently distinct. If we were to trademark and then someone came along and went um, A to slash Z animal care, would you then have um, right to sort of say we're not too happy about that? Or is that far, is, is that different enough to let them go away with it? If, so if you got that registered and then they just added a slash in the middle, um, I think that wouldn't be enough to take them away. So that that should provide you with a kind of solid ground for objection. Okay, and so uh, I'm just trying to sort of spell it out for people so it, it makes it clearer in my head and, and, and help other people maybe. So if I, so we're in Kent, so uh, in Bredesden, so if someone then registered A-Z Animal Care um, Bolton, would that be an infringement, infringement or is that different enough to, to get away with it? So that, again, arguably, you would have a case for objection on that because um, if you had it registered as a UK trademark, you have protection throughout the whole of the UK. So it doesn't matter that they're not where you are um, or that they're at the other end of the country. If they're starting using it, and again, this is it's always kind of the favourite phrase of uh, lawyers, like, it depends on the case, so it's kind of fact-specific. No clear no, which makes it interesting, you know, it keeps it keeps it different. But um, provided they just started using, they didn't have all these kind of use prior, which maybe they built up something protectable just through unregistered rights, um, it should still give you a ground for objection because arguably that Bolton, it's just, you know, people could think, oh, well, they've opened up a new new place in Bolton. Yeah. Oh, maybe they're going to offer up um, A to Z Animal Care Edinburgh, A to Z Animal Care Leeds. Maybe this is just a kind of new branch in it, in it chain. And so there would still be what we call, or what is the test, a likelihood of confusion, which is the likelihood that consumers would think that those services come from the same or related entities. And would it matter if they're the same colours? And would it matter if they had a complete different logo, but just that name? Would that all be taken into account as well? Yeah, so again, that, that would depend on what you had registered. So if you had it registered as just the name, mm -hmm. um, then if they'd slapped a different logo on it, doesn't matter because they're still using your trademark as part of it. Right. Again, doesn't matter then if they've changed the colours. If they're using A to Z Animal Care, you've got a registered trademark that's still a problem for them. Um, if you registered it to say the office did have a problem with A to Z Animal Care and we ended up registering it in colour or with a the logo, then if they start using it in a kind of different way, that's where it starts to get tricky. Um, but that's why your strongest form of protection is going to register your name as a word mark because Technically, then, if somebody is using it in a different font, doesn't matter. You know, if they're using it in a different colour, doesn't matter. You've got that baseline level of protection, which is the best thing that you could do if you can get it.
Yeah. And we're just um we're just talking about common words at the moment, aren't we, within the industry? And um Samantha's asked if the word salon or parlor is that would that be by, would that be a common word within the within the dog grooming industry? Yeah, so I think that that would be descriptive. So you wouldn't be able to just register salon or parlor on its own. Um and it would just mean that say you um say you registered, you know, Becky's salon, um, if somebody else registered Rosie's salon, for instance, then that would likely be different enough because you can't claim exclusive rights in the word salon for kind of grooming services. But if there was two Beckys, um, then the person with the trademark kind of wins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, depending as again, as long as they hadn't been using because you can build up what we call unregistered rights through extensive use. Hmm. Generally, as a rule of thumb, it's going to be five years. Um, so you can have some level of protection if you have been trading for a long time. The problem, again, is that it needs to be proved. So that's going to be via evidence, which is, again, trickier, is more expensive and adds an element of kind of risk. Like, have I done enough to prove it? Whereas if you've got a trademark registration and it just says, I've got Becky's salon, I've got it registered for dog creaming services and it dates from this date, that's just sorted unless they can do something to attack it which um without kind of going into all of all of the details about it and kind of derailing us um <laughs> there's, there's various different counterclaims that could be made um there's invalidity if somebody had early rights so if i registered becky's salon and um somebody had been using becky's salon for 10 years and had built up unregistered rights they could look into invalidating my registration if it if my registration post dated their use they'd again have to prove it they'd have to, to submit all of that evidence and have kind of a fight in the in the registry but it is possible and it can happen um they could decide if i registered becky salon um five years ago and i hadn't used it i just sat on it mm. once you've registered a trademark you've got five years to put it to what's called genuine use which is um used to kind of create or maintain a market share. Um, but if I'd just gone, oh, I'm just going to register that because I like it and I'm not going to use it, then somebody could apply to cancel it on the grounds of non-use. So um, provided there weren't any of those kind of counterclaims, if I registered it and somebody else came along with Becky's salon, I could stop them from doing that for the same thing. Right. Okay. And so to give you a bit of context around that question, um, the the name of it is Pause Grooming Parlour. So you'd have to trademark the whole name, the whole title, while you couldn't um, trademark the individual words, can you? Yeah, you wouldn't be able to just trademark pause or kind of grooming on their own. You'd want that as, as a whole. Yeah, yeah, you can't, yeah, you've got all the common names, that, all the common words in them, you pause grooming and parlour, so you'd have to be a trademark of the, um, the the whole wording and then probably the logo as well, wouldn't it, to encompass the whole? Yeah, I mean, you might, again, you might be okay with pause grooming parlour as a kind of a phrase because um, arguably there's enough of a dis like a kind of something extra to it that doesn't mean that it just directly describes because you wouldn't say oh I you know you kind of say I've been to pause grooming parlor as an a place rather than I've used a pause grooming parlor in terms of, of kind of a standard 
term. I mean, it gets a little bit blurry and that's why it's sometimes, unfortunately, we can't always say, yes, that will be fine um, or no, that will definitely get a risk. Sometimes we say there's a risk there, it's possible, but you could take a chance and see what happens because obviously if you get it through, great, then you've got that, that level of protection. If you want to be a little bit less risk averse or kind of more risk averse rather, then what you might want to do is add a logo that is distinctive and just kind of gives you something extra. And sometimes what people do as well is when they just want something done, they will register a logo um, with that that wording. So they've got that immediate piece of paper that says, this is my rights. And then they might build up use or they might, you know, build up a bit more budget and then come back and have a go at doing the words. Because then, then if there is an objection, they might have a little bit more to play with in terms of trying to get over that objection. Yeah. So, um, so again, if we go back to our business, AIDS Animal Care, we got we we can protect the the phrase, the logo, and then we've got like a strap line, which is the best for your pets. Can we then put that into the trademark as well? Yeah. So, you, I mean, you could register it if you wanted as logo AIDS Animal Care, the best for your pets as a whole. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that because, again. Um, you have then that that scope of protection resides in the whole. Mm-hmm. So that means that if somebody started using an element of that that whole, it's possible it could be found to be distinct enough to, to not allow you to take action. Um, slogans are tricky, unfortunately. Um, everybody likes slogans. They're really useful marketing tools. The offices don't like them so much. So the offices tend to say that they're not distinctive because consumers view them just as kind of promotional statements or kind of laudatory statements. So the offices, although there shouldn't be a higher test of distinctiveness when it comes to slogans versus word marks, in practice, it's very difficult to get a slogan registered. And so I wouldn't necessarily recommend trying to register the best for your pet as I think you would get an objection there. Okay. So we've come to you and we've said we've got AIDS Animal Care, we've got our logo, we've got our slogan, we've been going for 16 years. Um, why why should we look to protect our um, trademark now? So, so maybe forget the 16 years bit because that might give different advice, mightn't it? But um, we've just set up our business. So why why should I register my my business name and trademark it? Sorry, why should I trademark my name and logo? What protection does it give me? Yeah, so there, there are a number of different benefits of, of registered trademark protection. So for one, um, a registered trademark will protect your market. You can't stop competitors entering the market. So you can't stop somebody else from setting up a dog grooming business, but you can set yourself apart and stop others trying to muscle in on your brand. Um, they help to protect your reputation your investment in in your kind of services in your customer experience they enable you to to build up brand value and act as a marketing tool and they can attract investment and add value during mergers or the sale of a business so a registered trademark is a valuable company asset as we mentioned before they are monopoly rights and um, they can be used as security to raise finance or commercialize to generate revenue and they can be listed as assets in your company accounts and they can be bought sold licensed or franchised and basically the kind of key message is if you care about it then protect and register it is that your slogan 
Yeah, it should be, it should be. (laughs) I won't be able to register that, unfortunately. (laughs) But, you know, you you can get them, as we said, through use, those unregistered trademarks, but there are are limitations, as I mentioned. So you'll have to prove use through evidence. And registration is just a far better option and just much simpler for businesses. And we encounter, unfortunately, far too many businesses who've invested substantial time and money in, in developing their brand but haven't secured that investment through trademark clearance or searching, which I'll mention in a minute, and registration. And, you know, there's nothing worse than having to pull a promotion or kind of go back to square one because someone else has pipped you to it. And, and unfortunately, I've come across it happening all too often. And it kind of allows you, if you register, to secure rights in your brand assets or your trademark ahead of use as well so you can then preserve your market entry or your your product launch position and it might alert others to your rights and also importantly can deter third parties from using anything the same or similar so when you register to trademark you can use the iron circle you could use that by your trademark by your logo as long as you have it registered if you don't you can use the tm sign which doesn't have any legal effect but still can be a bit of a deterrent to show that you consider it to be a trademark but you can't use the iron circle if you haven't got it registered as that's a criminal offence. Um, so definitely not something that you want to do. Um, and if you've got able to put that iron circle, that can serve as a powerful deterrent for you know any unscrupulous third parties who want to take advantage of your brand. So this, sorry, can we just go back to that? So the iron, iron circle is um, the TM? Sort so of- you, can have, you can have the TM on its own anyway but having r in a circle that registered that symbol is off limits unless it's registered as it's got legal meaning okay so we're not currently trademarked our name so we could put tm next to our um logo next to our name and Mm -hmm. that's like um a bit beware of the dog sign you know yeah don't come near us you might get bitten but we haven't really got anything we've only got a chihuahua behind the gates yeah um, but then once the trademark is registered, um, we can then put the R along up there. And uh, that's like, you will get bitten by our big German shepherd we got behind the gates. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so stay away from our name and logo. So Absolutely. It's, illegal, it's illegal to use the R in the circle unless you're, um, you've got a registered trademark. Yeah, that's right. Right. And I mean, a bit like kind of beware of the dog sign, like you say, it's also kind of quite a good way of thinking about trademarks. I think it's a bit like having an insurance policy. Hmm. You know, you've got your home insurance. Most of the time you forget about it. Um, But if you smash your phone or your laptop breaks, you kind of relieve that you've got that policy in place and then you can make a claim, which, you know, like with a trademark registration, most of the time you, once you've got it sorted, you won't think about it. But, when you need to defend your right to use it or try and stop somebody else from taking advantage of your brand by in your hard work, by coming too close, then you've got that registration there to make that process simpler and cheaper. Yeah. And something that you said in there about um, when you trademark your, your name, it can add value to your business. How do we you know anything about how we um, evaluate that value? How does that value grow as our business grows or is there set value, set valuation? Can we get a valuation? You can get a valuation. Um, I think there are a number of firms that would do a kind of a specialist intellectual property valuation for you. Um, 
it's not something that we we offer as part of our services but definitely the value will grow as the use you know if you've just got your registration um but you haven't you've got years of use behind you you're unlikely to have the extremely high value attached to your trademark but when you think again about coca-cola that brand is going to be worth a lot of money and i think there's a kind of common i don't remember the exact quote but one that's often thrown around that um you know if they kind of lost all their assets obviously wouldn't wouldn't be great um if they kind of one of you know a load of their factories destroyed or something um but they'd be able to bounce back from it whereas if everybody woke up tomorrow and they forgot the brand coca-cola that would be just devastating because in a way most of their their value of their business lies in their brand and the, the way that they can monetize that and and use it mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. But that's interesting. It's another sort of um, motivation for people to go out there and trademark. And also you said about the franchise. Um, what's So we have a, we have people in the group that want to do franchising or they are franchisees or they offer franchises. So how does it work for them with the trademarking side of things? So if you were, um, you know, becoming a franchise of another business, then no doubt as part of that agreement there'll be uh kind of allowances in place for how you can use the, the brand so you know if you were i don't know like a pizza hut or something and you were you were operating as a franchise then there'll be strict company guidelines for branding but it means that you've got the benefit of being under that shelter of that kind of big brand where you're not starting from scratch to kind of get your customers in because the customers already know what they're getting. They already expect certain quality and certain product coming from, from Pizza Hut. If you were starting off your own set of franchises, then again, you might want to kind of list very carefully how people use a brand. You'd, I mean, it comes in with kind of licensing as well, where you can then have an agreement in place to allow people to use your brand you'll want very strict quality controls on on the product or the services that you're offering so that then their use doesn't impact the value of your brand and the reputation that you've built up. But if they're upholding that quality, great, then you can kind of have more people bringing more reputation to you by by just kind of exposure. Um, But you'd want to have some kind of agreement in place to just list very carefully how they can use it any obligations that they have to do, you know, if, if they come across um, naughty third-party use, for instance, they have to tell you, um, can they use it in specific ways? You know, they, they can't mangle your logo, use it in a kind of really bad way. Yeah. If they're, they're printing off promotional literature, for instance, they've got to print it in a good quality way because you, you don't want to look rubbish by them kind of sending out shoddy leaflets. Um, and, you know, what happens if they don't adhere to that? That's kind of often a very important part of licensing. What are the, the penalties? Does that mean that the license agreement breaks down? Does that mean that they have to pay you something? Um, what are the penalties? And it's just very important to get that stuff kind of quite clearly delineated because it can save um, save a lot of disputes and a lot of time if it's clearly set out. Yeah, so that will be in your franchise agreement, wouldn't it? How, how to use a brand, where to yeah. use and uh, and the trademarks and everything so so i've i've contacted you and said i've got this um new business i've got my name i've got my my i'm excited because i've got my logo uh, i've gone back to the logo designer and said uh can you sign that over to me so that they can't give it to anyone else um and that's all in their t's and c's so how do i go about um registering a trademark what's the process behind it 
yeah so I mean the, the first thing that you'll want to do is choose exactly what you want to protect so as we talked about you've got a lot of different choices you know you can have words slogan so subject to the issues we talked about slogans logo etc is there more than one version so um an interesting quirk of the uk trademark uh just process is that you can have uh, a series mark so you can have uh, a trademark where you register it in different colors so you can have your logo in black and white or grayscale and you could have color version and you can register that as a series at the office um you could have your mark all in caps lower caps um again as a series if you wanted to i mean i we generally just register them if, if clients are going for, for what we call word marks so just in the plain text we'll just generally do it all in caps and kind of standard font. Um, so then you've picked what you want to protect. Where do you want to protect it? Where are you trading? Is that just in the UK? Is it further afield? That's one of the key considerations of trademarks because they are what we call territorial in nature. So there unfortunately isn't something called a worldwide trademark. You have to register in specific countries of interest, um, which I'm assuming for, for most of us, it's going to be the UK. But, you know, sometimes people want to be you know, branching out to the US, into China, you know, lots of different places. And depending on the territories of interest and your budget, there are different ways of doing that. I won't go into all the detail now because that can get quite complicated, but there are um, various different mechanisms that are more cost effective. Um, one that's just nice and easy to note is that if you say have the UK, but you're also interested in like Germany, France, Spain, Sweden, there is something called an EU trademark where you can protect all 27 member states in one overarching uh, mm -hmm. registration. I'm glad you said that actually, because we do have people in Southern Ireland that are in the group, so they might be watching. Yeah. I was about to say, if you register, so if this concentrate on England, and then I suddenly thought, actually, we've got people from Southern Ireland. So I would register a trademark in the UK. Would that cover Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland? Yeah, that's right. Um, they would have to pick up an EU um, trademark. Yeah, that's right. If you if you wanted to protect in Ireland, I mean, you could register just in Ireland as a national trademark as well. Oh, okay. Um, but if you had more territories in the EU of interest, then you might consider going for an EU trademark. Until very recently, the UK was covered by the EU trademark as well. That's there. now been, yeah, we won't go, we won't go into it too much, but now it's, now it's separate. Um, that's the kind of the territory that you need to think about. Um, and the, the other very important consideration when you're looking at registration is what do you want to protect? What do you want to use your mark on? So you register your trademark in relation to specific goods and services. You don't get it for everything, which is why you can have, for instance, polo for mints, polo for a car, because they're, they're different and they protect different things and there isn't an overlap. Um, how do you currently use your mark? What do you use it on? Might you wish to expand? So um, those goods and services are categorised according to something called the NICE classification system, which divides them up into 45 different classes. However many classes you select will determine the cost. Um, but something that's important to note when you are coming to register is that you can't add goods and services after you've filed it. You can't widen that scope of protection. So if you think, um, for instance, I'm just offering uh, dog grooming services now, but maybe I, I really want to launch a, a range of animal clothing in a couple of years' time. Maybe you want to protect it 
animal clothing under that trademark now as it's cheaper to just add another class than it is to file a whole new application but then you do have to consider the non-use thing of the kind of mentioned earlier with the five years so don't try and protect everything under the sun um again without getting horrendously technical there's also some requirements um called intent to use so when you file a trademark you make a declaration that you have uh, a bona fide intent to use the trademark in relation to the goods or services if you know you reasonably think yes i am gonna or i, I might want to to branch out into this area that's fine but um if you think oh i'm going to protect dog grooming services and i'm also going to protect i don't know uh petrol or you know just something completely random that that's unrelated not conceivable you might run into issues with uh bad faith but that's a, a nicer complicated area of law that lots of people are fighting about at the minute as well <laughs> so um we've come to you with a to z animal care we've got the logo we're probably going to leave the um best for your pets because that sounds really complicated and could become more expensive we're yeah. dog groomers um we're cat groomers we do teeth cleaning you know microchipping what sort of categories do i need to register for yeah so i mean that will for all the kind of cleaning and veterinary services Type, those kind of things tend to fall under class 44 i believe that um the dog grooming might fall under that class as well so you might be lucky and that you only need to think about one um i would need to double check that um as off the top of my head though i'm actually just going to check it now out of interest <laughs> because then then i could tell you for certain um it's probably i'm searching dog grooming it's probably going to want to be pet grooming yeah, would um, pet grooming then cover the whole, you know, it covers, we do guinea pigs and rabbits as well. So pet grooming probably cover the whole sort of sphere of what we do. Yeah, that's right. And that does, just checking that now, that does fall under 44 as well, as I thought. Um, so that's also why it's quite important to, to get advice about what you're protecting. Because um, you might think, for instance, oh, dog grooming, that's my main business. I'm just going to protect dog grooming, when actually you could include pet grooming and have that wider scope of protection. Now, as I kind of mentioned, the trademark allows you to stop somebody from using something identical or similar um, for identical or similar goods and services. So if you did have registered protection for dog grooming, likely you would, you know, if somebody started going, well, I'm doing cats, it's fine you might you know still likely be able to stop them because it's similar but it's just if, you, if you're protecting yourself why not get that kind of broad level of protection that you need um in the first place rather than thinking oh well, i did that five years ago and now i need to update it um it just makes things a little bit easier for you um in terms of it, it might be a good time for me to mention searching as i think i've, I've briefly mentioned clearance when we're talking about the process mm -hmm. um generally what you want to do as well when you're looking to protect a trademark is make sure that nobody's got a registration mark that you're interested in or you know is already using that mark because as we mentioned you can get unregistered rights that can can pose a problem um there are various levels of search that you can do depending on how comprehensive you want to be we offer different types so something called an availability search which allows you to check out if there's identical similar marks for identical similar goods and services because like I said that's that's the scope of protection that you're dealing with or you can do something um which we call a quick and dirty search which is just um identical marks identical goods which will you know obviously give you an idea if somebody's 
bang on out there, but doesn't mean that you're in the clear. If you're not wanting to do that, although we'd always recommend it, um, I would definitely recommend at least having a cursory Google because that can often disclose if there's an absolute bar and somebody doing the exact same thing as you. Um, that yeah, that kind of cut the other day for me, didn't it? And I'll perhaps mention that a bit later. So, so, um, so we we're talking about pet grooming. Now we um, have never done dog walking, and we probably will never branch out into dog walking. So we wouldn't be able to put that protect that, would we? So it would not be advisable if you have no intention of doing it. Um, I mean, if you think maybe there's a chance you could include it. Um, there's there's quite a lot of fights right now about exactly how you determine if someone did have an intention to use in relation to specific goods and services. But, you, never, um, you never get into someone's head, could you, to say, well, you intend to do it? It's well, precise, you know, and you, you can't... In the UK, we don't ask for things like evidence of a business plan. There's sometimes in, in Korea or Japan, when I've been helping clients protect their trademarks there, if you've got a really broad list of goods and services, sometimes the office said, well, actually, we want to see a business plan to see that you are legitimately intending to use. Um, we don't tend to do that. Well, we don't do that here. Um, so, you know, you could technically get away with it as it's kind of related to and similar, but generally the advisable thing to do is is to stick to what you you actually have an intention to use with or you think that you might have an intention to use mm. yeah it's um an interesting one that the um so we've identified what class we're going to go into we're going to go class 44 i don't think there's any other classes that we need to do by the sounds of it um what's the process after that Okay, so what, what we do if you were using us, for instance, is we would draft that list of goods and services or what we call a specification, and we make sure that you're happy with it. Because like I said, you can't widen it once it's been filed. So if you suddenly think, oh, actually, um, not that you are, but actually, I think we're going to offer veterinary services, so I'd like to include that. You know, we'd make sure all of that sort of you. We then file it. Um, this is obviously talking about the UK process. It can be different in different territories, but the UK would, would kind of seem to be the sensible one to concentrate for just simplicity. Um, we'd file it. Once it had been filed, we'd go back to those registrability assessments. The office would have an examination of, of your application, those legal criteria, which we discussed earlier. And it would also, as part of this, carry out searches for earlier identical or similar trademarks automatically, which is another reason why it's a good idea to search to do some level of clearance before you file. Mm -hmm. The UK office will provide you with a report which sets out if there are any marks that it's found that it considers to be close, um, and it will notify the owners of those trademarks located in searches. It won't refuse to register the trademark because it's found a conflict um, unless the proprietor of that trademark files an acquisition against you. Once the application has completed that examination stages, so it's found great, yeah, we think the mark is distinctive, we don't think it's descriptive, we don't think there's a problem here, it will publish it for two months for, for what we call an opposition period, which gives third parties the opportunity to object in those two months. They can extend it by another month if they file something called a notice of threatened opposition. Um, that obviously doesn't happen all the time. It just happens if somebody's concerned, maybe they're having to think about whether or not they want to oppose it and it buys them a little bit more time. 
then if you clear this hurdle, you had your two months, nobody's popped up, the application will go forward to registration and the certificate will be issued. And then, like I said before, that will be effective throughout the whole of the UK. In terms of kind of time, usually we would expect the uh, process to take between three and four months in total. So quite quick for the UK. Um, at the minute, it's more likely to be five to six because of the effects of uh, the thing we're not going to talk about. Um, and then you'll need to renew your registration every 10 years if you want to maintain it, which you can do theoretically indefinitely. Again, subject to some of those use requirements that won't interfere with your renewal. So the office won't say you need to prove that you've used it. Hmm. But if you renew it, renew it, renew it, and you're not using it, then somebody else could say, hmm, you look like you've had that trademark for 30 years. I'm doing something, my, my mark's similar, maybe you're, you're cross with me for doing it, but you don't look like you're actually maintaining those rights by using them. I'm going to file a counterclaim against you for non-use. Right. And um, if we went to someone like yourselves, um, do you put something in the diary for 10 years later to give us to write to us and say, right, it's time to renew, I take it? Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a um, docketing system where we diarise everything like that. So um, we then write to you. So you can renew a registration up to six months in advance of the renewal date and we will be letting you know in advance of that time writing to you saying hello your registration is due for renewal it'll cost this much and I think we our processes we send you three reminders and um, then obviously if you don't respond we won't renew it um, unless so sometimes I have you know as the as the attorneys because we have you know, different sections of the business that help with that. So we have a renewals department that deals with all of those reminders. Um, as the attorneys, we'll take a look at, at marks that have been, you know, not responded to. And um, we might write to people sometimes uh, if we think there's a, you know, something's not right here. So if, for instance, you're, you know, you've got your A to Z registered and you're still using it. And I think, hmm, Bill hasn't replied to me about this, but he probably does want to keep it. I might send a follow-up registration, um, not registration, follow-up reminder as well, just saying, hi, you might not have flagged this, but if you don't renew it, then you won't have protection in the UK anymore. Are you sure? Um, and we might just send a kind of prod to, to just help because no. it's an important thing. Yeah, exactly. The website no longer exists and maybe that's like, well, they're probably not trading it longer. Exactly, which is, is something that happens because it, it's a 10-year period, right? So we might look back and think, oh, actually, I can see on company's house that company was dissolved. They're probably not interested. So if you've sent the three reminders out already, you might think, well, there's, there's nothing else I, can, I can't find them anymore because the, the address is gone. <laughs> so oh, there's loads of people commenting now and they're all chomping at a bit about cost can you give us an idea of cost i don't know if you want to discuss exact costs or whether that's possible or just a, a rough ballpark figure that would be really helpful for people the the setup costs and then the re-registration costs and things like that yeah no absolutely i mean um as i mentioned the costs will depend on exactly what you're protecting so the number of different classes if you're just protecting one class and you're using us, then um, for filing through to registration, so to take into account all that assistance with the goods and services, making sure that you're happy with that, making sure everything's in order, all of the kind of following it through the process, notifying you of the publication period, notifying you of the registration, checking all those certificates, all those details, that would be £800 plus VAT. Um, assuming that there aren't any objections or oppositions, obviously if somebody files an opposition to you, 
then if you want to defend it, that will incur further costs. But something we do is we really aim not to surprise clients with costs. So particularly with, with kind of newer clients, smaller businesses, what we'll tend to do is say, we've had this, you know, do you want me to look at it? Here's a cost estimate if you want me to look at it. But we won't just say, oh, I've looked at it, here's a bill. You know, that's that's not fair. Um, so we, we don't do that. Um, in terms of renewal, I think, again, well, that will depend on the number of classes that you have protected. But I think off the top of my head, a renewal cost for that 10-year period would be, I think it was when I looked the other day, £409 for one class plus VAT. Okay. So, you know, it's a long-term investment, isn't it? It's a 10-year um, trademark. So you're paying the money now, but it, it protects you for, like you said, it's about insurance, isn't it? So Yeah. If you almost think of it a bit like your kind of home insurance, then if that's that £800 for VAT, that's £80 a year, which actually, if you think about getting that registered and the, the benefit that will bring you, um, isn't so much when you think about it spread over cost. Although... We do appreciate, obviously, especially with businesses that are starting up, that does feel like quite a lot of money. Yeah. And how, how are you for time? I've got loads of questions. <laughs> um, so we've we've registered our, our name as a trademark and we're grooming. We've been going for a couple of years, but it's been trademarked. And all of a sudden, someone's customers come in and said, oh, I've seen your, your logo down the road or I've seen another name, your AIDS Animal Care. Um, I've just moved out from Essex and your AIDS Animal Care over there. Is that right? And you're like, mm, no, that's not right. How do we go? What do we do then? How do we raise a, a, a case, a claim against the other people? Yeah, so what you would probably do first of all is say, hi, Becky, I've just found this. Uh, I'm not very happy about it. Hmm. And what I'd say is, okay, let's take a look. And what we do, first of all, is do a little bit of digging about. So we've got all those other considerations, like we've talked about with unregistered rights, um, or, you know, have they got a trademark registered? Because it might be that, you know, the two things have got registered at the same time. That can happen um, because it might be that, you know, one of you registered first, and then, especially if you register it yourself, because when you register it with a firm like us, we talked about those searches that um, the UK office will do automatically and it will notify owners. We get um, those notifications come to us when we're the address for service for you and we'll take a look at them. And I mean, you get a lot of them in and some of them are just bonkers in that you think these are not close at all. So we'll take a little look and we flag any to you that we think are worth looking at. So if you've got a registered a recorded representative, you should have it flagged to you if um, somebody is applied to register something that's similar because we should have looked at it and gone, you might want to know about this. If you've registered it yourself and then you haven't updated the address or you know, you, you've not got any, any kind of place for that information to go, you might not be notified. So it, there is always the possibility that somebody could have something out there and they've just not been aware of you, but then you know, that, that's a kind of a bit of a conundrum because you, you then have to think a bit more carefully of, do I want to poke this? Is it that uh, if I now poke them, they could look at invalidating my trademark on the basis of their earlier rights? So we'd want to have a little look to make sure there aren't any counterclaims. If there aren't any counterclaims, so you've got a good position, we've looked at it, we've gone, yes, these marks are similar. Yes, they're using it for similar things. No, they don't look like they've got anything that they can attack you on. What we probably suggest doing first is writing a cease and desist letter and 
we tend to try and take a relatively friendly approach unless the situation demands otherwise. So obviously, if you've got a really flagrant infringer, I mean, I had one client where somebody somebody had set up a, a, basically a shack right by an official store, um, ripping them off, just completely. It was like just opposite, absolutely flagrant. And um, <laughs> it wasn't even that. It was weird. Um, they'd just done it. And, you know, the client, first of all, said, well, we'll just try and go over and talk to them and just say, oh, you might not be aware, but you can't actually do this. And they just swore at them and shouted at them and just, you know, really like very, very uh, vitriolic response. Mm-hmm. That kind of instance, we might write quite a stroppy letter to them because they clearly know what they're doing and they clearly know that they're not in, not in the right generally if it's a case of kind of somebody's popped up and you think there isn't anything there that they've done it deliberately we try and take a relatively friendly approach of kind of you might not be aware our clients got this registration it entitles them to xyz we're a bit concerned by what you're doing could you please stop um sometimes obviously that will work great amazing sorted we can get that dealt with and then what you might think about doing is um, again depending on the situation you might want to get them to sign a set of, of undertakings to say that they won't use it again they won't register it they won't you know interfere in your business um again that's going to be a case-by-case basis because you might think this, this is a problem i don't want to incur the time or cost doing that again it probably depends on some of their conduct and how they've been um so you do that. If they won't back down or they ignore you, then we'd send some follow-ups, first of all. Um, and then if they're really ignoring you or they're saying, nope, I'm not changing it, you've got to have a think about how far you want to push it. Because ultimately, if somebody is using something that's damaging to your business and you are not happy about it, then if they won't cooperate, what is left to you is court which obviously is not necessarily what everybody wants to hear because um, that won't be a cheap uh, route if you do have to take it. So it's not something to be entered into lightly because when you do get involved in court, then um, unfortunately the court system is not such that you get all your costs back. You might get a portion of them back, but you're never going to recover everything. And so you need to think quite carefully about it. But then they want to think quite carefully about it too because they don't want to get sued. So again, you might have a look, it might end up being a bit of almost brinkmanship because you might be writing them a letter saying, if you don't do this, we are going to be forced to sue you. They don't know how serious you are. So you might be 100% serious and thinking, I am, I've got the claim form and I'm going to put it in court you know, tomorrow if they don't reply. Or you might be a bit like, I really don't want to have to do this, but this feels like the option that I'm going to have to look at. Um, so that's that's the kind of ultimate one. You might have, again, a few other options where um, if they're online, there's this takedowns. So I've done Facebook takedowns for people. I've done Instagram takedowns. Um, there's also, because um, it's probably worth mentioning now, company names and domain names, because sometimes people unfortunately think, I've got my company name registered, I've got my domain name registered, I'm sorted. It's not the case, unfortunately. Trademark is is the king. That's the one that really stops you or allows you to stop people from using a trademark that is identical or similar to you. The domain name won't do it. It'll mean that somebody hasn't registered your domain name, but it won't give you kind of enforcement rights. But the positive for that is if um, 
you've got your trademark registered and somebody registers um, an identical or similar domain name or an identical or similar company name, there might be things that you can do about it. And that's something I've helped clients with before as well. Or you've had opportunistic company names registered and we've recovered those. Or I had one client which was um, in investments and a third party set up a clone website where they'd ripped pictures of the client off they'd ripped the name they were claiming the address they were linking to the client's company's register entry as certification um, and claiming to be a branch of the client and we got that taken down we got that suspended and then we got the domain name transferred back over to the client so depending on how they're using there might be other things as well like if it's just the website you might be able to deal with that by a domain name complaint rather than doing court but it, it will depend on the case and how cross you are about it and what your appetite is for for litigation which you know lots of people obviously understandably don't want to have to get into litigation unless it's absolutely necessary yeah and uh, it sounds like you can actually so um you find people with your logo on instagram and facebook it sounds like you actually interact with facebook and instagram and do you give them serve them some legal papers to say you must remove that from your um from your platform yeah that's right so you know i've, I've written letters to people before where we flagged uh, screenshots of things that they're doing on instagram um i've got a case like that going on at minute where um i've had one of the the trainees help me by compiling about 650 screenshots of different uh <laughs> uses on social media which um i was very very grateful for the help for because yeah. did not have the time to do that myself um and we'll say you know this is what you're doing please stop doing it if they don't then we look at the routes through instagram um or twitter or facebook because there are mechanisms in place those can sometimes be a little bit interesting because um the people who are putting those takedowns in action are to my knowledge not necessarily trained in intellectual property. So I've, I've sometimes had responses where they say, you know, the third party is using a logo, which has our client's trademark in it. And they say, oh, well, it's not exactly the same because they're using a logo. And then you have to go back and say, no, because this section of the Trademark Act means this, this, and this. And, you know, you'll get there, but you sometimes have to be a bit persistent. Mm. Um, or I had, you know, one again with another client where we had a clone website there were a load of posts publicizing that clone website and Facebook kept saying, well, that's your client's goods and services. So it's not a problem. They're just advertising your client's goods and services. No, that's, that's the point. They're not, they're not our client's goods and services. They are a dangerous scam. Um, you're being confused. This proves the test. Please take them down. And again, we got there in the end, but you can have a bit of back and forth sometimes. Yeah. And I made a, I suppose I made a bit of a flippant comment earlier about um, no win, no fee. Is trademark, um, you know, going after people regarding your trademark, is that covered by no win, no fee? Or is that, um, we, if we want to, to take someone on about using our trademark, that's down to us and we're paying for it. And like you said, the, the courts can award you um, costs, but like you said, it doesn't always cover everything. <laughs> Yeah, so it will depend on the firm, really. So our firm, for instance, we don't offer conditional fee arrangements or no win, no fee. Uh, some will, I imagine, or some, you know, there, there will be arrangements in place. Um, but it, it will just depend on what that firm is offering. In terms of the costs, to give you an idea, um, if you're suing in the 
special intellectual property enterprise court, um, you might be able to get costs of up to £50,000 back. But to run a case could be maybe if you're kind of going in properly um, between 100 to 200,000 pounds. You could get damages or uh, an account of profits um, as your kind of your your remedy of up to 500,000 pounds. But again, you know, you can't rely on that. That will depend on the assessment by the judge. So it is something to think quite carefully about and to think quite creatively. I mean, like we said, there's different takedown mechanisms, domain name, um, and although infringers, especially on the internet, kind of can get quite clever about it, there are mechanisms. I mean, I think you you asking if I've um, interacted with them. I mean, the, the kind of slightly strangest one I've had to do is serve a cease and desist a couple of times on WhatsApp because that's been what's been available. You know, we, we haven't been able to get an address, but we've got a number. And so that's what you've done um, to try and get people to, to cooperate. And, you know, if you're taking a, another groomer's court procedure in your name, the chances are, you know, even if you are successful and they're not going to be able to afford those costs, are they? And so even if you've got damages and costs awarded against uh, towards you, you're going to end up with, like, owning their house on a mortgage or something because you, they're not, you know, I'm a li- we're a limited company. You'd just be like, well, we'll just- yeah company you're not getting any money whatsoever from us Uh, no absolutely that that's another good thing you know because I think sometimes people hear the kind of oh could get up to five hundred thousand pounds and almost think kind of dollar signs Mm -hmm. um but you've then you've got to get that money out of them so really the most valuable thing for you is them stopping Mm -hmm. and if you can achieve that through some kind of settlement if you can achieve that through through takedowns and things that's that's going to be the key thing for you because you just don't want them potentially damaging your brand. It's not necessarily the finance that you can get out of it. Yeah. Can we get insurance? Uh, do you deal with insurance companies? I'd have to have a look at our own insurance policy. Once we've got our name trademarked, could we then take out insurance to help us with fighting those cases? So that's not something that I've come across um, before. I mean, we the kind of the extent of, of dealings that we have with insurance companies are just that as a regulated firm, we are required to be insured um, because obviously in the horrible, horrible scenario that something goes wrong for a client, we need to be insured to be able to kind of help that. Um, it's not something that I've heard of. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I feel like I probably would have heard it if it is a thing, but um I cannot 100% say that it's not. No, and you know, we're talking big numbers again, aren't we? So insurance yeah. companies might shy away from that, especially when, uh, I mean, I'm assuming it must take years to get these sort of things to court. Yeah, so the, the IPEC, that Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, um, is, is meant to be more streamlined than the High Court. So maybe you're looking at, so say you've, you've done all your kind of your pre-action stuff, you've, you've tried settling it out of court, try getting them to cooperate and you go right then they're not cooperating now i've just got to file a claim generally from that date of filing and serving a claim on them um you estimate between 12 to 18 months um to get to a decision so not horrendous but obviously a long time still if that's what you're having to deal with on top of running your business as well um high court it will tend to be a bit longer because um the cases tend to be bigger the evidence more hefty um and you know 
the IPEC, um, the judges are very keen to keep things as streamlined as possible. So they'll not look too favorably on people who maybe are kind of trying to plead loads of different issues that are all very, very similar. They'll kind of want you to just get to the nub of it and think, no, what is the actual problem? What is my case? Mm. Here's some tangential stuff that isn't really going to impact it. Strip it out. We don't, we don't want this. Cool. And uh, I just wanted to clear one thing up for our um, viewers that are in Ireland. So if they are in Southern Ireland, they can register a trademark within the EU and that will cover them um, for the all of the EU countries. But then they obviously, they probably need to consider registering a trademark in Ireland itself. Yeah. And do they register a trademark in the UK as well to, to stop people from Northern Ireland from using their... So if they were concerned about Northern Ireland, then yeah, they would need to file um, to get a UK trademark. Um, if it's just uh, the Republic of Ireland, then they could just do a national. Um, and they, like we said, they could do the EU if that was of interest. Um, if it's just Ireland that's of interest to them, it'll be cheaper to just do Ireland. Um, but if, if you have a couple of territories in the EU that are of interest, it's more cost effective to get an EU trademark. Cool. Okay. So... And one all these questions come to my head. You know, there's people in the group like Colin Taylor hangs out in the group now and then, and he produces products, um, grooming products. I'm sure he probably, I'm assuming he exports across the world. So I'm thinking, can he trademark? What has he trademark his name in the US of A? So I want to um, design and sell courses to people in the US. Um, how do I trademark my name in the in the US? So. Um different mechanisms i mean in some ways there's a lot of similarities again in that you know it will involve picking what your mark is picking what you want to cover and getting that filed through um, the trademark office but how you do it will depend on whether it's just the us of interest whether you've got other places that you're interested in so if for instance um you want to register in the us you want to register in china in japan um canada then probably it's going to be more cost effective to use something called the Madrid uh, protocol system or the international system, which is basically a mechanism where you have to first of all get uh, what we call a base or a home registration, which would be your UK. You get that registered and then you mirror it with um, an international application at some place called uh, the World Intellectual Property Office or WIPO. You've then got that central hub of the international and you can designate different territories under that in a kind of umbrella of rights. So you've got your international and then you can say, right, I want to protect the US, China, Japan, Canada under this. And then WIPO will do a preliminary examination to just make sure everything's in order with that central one, central application. And then it will send it out to the different territories of interest that you've designated and each will then examine it under their laws and if you get it protected it will have the same effect as a national trademark registration in those places it will just have been done through the international system and it's just cheaper because um just designating them it, there's just a cost saving that is attached to it and it can be useful as well because um it's all in one place. You renew it centrally. And what's quite handy with the international as well, if you do have lots of lots of territories that are of interest and you might have more in the future, you can do something called subsequent designation as well, where um, at a later date, you add more territories to that international. Mm -hmm. And again, it's cheaper than filing them as a brand new national application in, in another territory. 
So that's quite handy um, and something we, we flag to clients as well if they are interested in foreign expansion is called the priority period, where when you file a trademark for the first time, you get a six month priority period where you can file in another territory um, as long as it's signed up to something called the, the kind of Paris Convention, but most of them that we tend to encounter are, so it's not generally a problem. And you've got six months when you can file in there. So say you've got in the US, so you file tomorrow in the UK, you've got then six months where you can file in the US and effectively backdate your filing date to the UK one. So that means that, say, like I said, we file in the UK tomorrow. In five months' time, we file in the, the US. But in the meantime, somebody else has filed in the US for your mark, then you would still have the earlier rights because you would have backdated your your date to the priority of the UK so that's quite handy for um, preserving that earlier filing date and also just spreading up budget so you might think I want to get my UK sorted but I don't immediately also want to file and register in the in the US as well. Cool I might have to uh, have a look at that then so do you have time for questions there's a few questions on the. I can do yeah I can do a few <laughs> myself yeah i'm just gonna to to scroll back through um so elizabeth said i had my logo speci specially designed and in the future i plan to expand should i be trademarking that um probably yes <laughs> yeah i think that that would be probably yes um so we should be trading up trademarking our logo as part of our whole branding as well shouldn't we yeah, I mean, basically, we it again becomes a kind of budgeting game. So um, as we mentioned, that word mark, so for the, the words themselves, is going to be your strongest protection. So if you're going to prioritise anything, that's what I would generally recommend. Um, you might, you know, in an ideal world, what you do is you'd register the words, the words plus the logo and the logo itself as a real belts and braces. But if you're going to pick one of them, generally the word mark is going to be your best bet. Right. Okay. And then once we've trademarked our logo, do we then need to go through all of our um, branding and put the, the the seal on it, or can we just do we have to put that on there? Change everything. You don't have. You don't have to. It's just something that that sometimes then people want to do because of the the kind of deterrent effect. It could be something that you you do as and when you kind of update things but it's not a legal requirement to display the r in a circle it's just a legal requirement not to use it when you don't have it registered okay um so what if you're trading so someone's been trading for like say five years under a name and then someone comes along this year and trademark trademarks part of that name and then sort of says but you need to stop using it. Do you have any sort of rights over that, or is that part of the argument that you can you can use? So that will be it. Will be fact specific. But if you have been trading for some time, then it might be that you have some unregistered rights that you could use to rebut that claim. So either to say, you know, depending how kind of aggressive you want to get, either to just be like, get lost, <laughs> I have rights, or to say no, I'm going to attack those. You know, you're, you're asserting this trademark registration to me. I don't think it's valid because I think I've got rights to predate you. Um, and that will probably depend on, A, how aggressive you want to be, B, how aggressive they're being. Because, um, you know, I've had that with a client recently where um, 
we had unregistered rights dating back for about 15 years. And we were applying to register the trademark because uh, the client just thought, right, now's a good time. Let's get my house in order. Somebody popped up and said, no, we don't like that. We had the unregistered rights that predated them. Um, and we could have applied to invalidate their registration. In the end, what we did is we reached an agreement because commercially, although we were in the same class, we had different products in different areas. And it was cheaper and more effective to the client to just reach an agreement where we say, well, we won't bother you, you won't bother us. Great. Yeah, so if you're in different counties, you know, pet grooming is very um, location-specific, unless you're a mobile groomer, but even then they have sort of certain territories. So if you're in one county and you're offering services there, but another person in another county, um, as long as you can't don't confuse the two businesses, I suppose, then you'd probably settle on, okay, you do your thing and we'll do our thing sort of thing. Yeah, you might just kind of go on a live and let live kind of agreement. If you were, if you were actually entering into any kind of agreement um, in terms of territorial splitting up, um, probably not a good idea you need to check with a competition lawyer because um you don't want to uh look like you're kind of trying to partition the market and i don't i don't know keep other people out it it can all get a bit complicated but if it was kind of just a matter of they're in um edinburgh i'm in london i'm not bothered they're not bothered we'll just leave each other alone that's that's fine and i mean i think you so for instance um I think one of the not not obviously dog grooming but hairdressing i see for instance um lots of the same hairdresser names used because you know there's, there's certain puns that people like there's um certain names that are quite popular and you might see them in different cities and they seem to just be coexisting i mean you never know because you you don't know if there's an agreement that's gone on behind the scenes because generally those things are kept confidential mm-hmm. um but you know if if they're kind of there are lots of them using the same kind of things, then generally you think it might be a case of everybody's just leaving each other alone. Just get on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so on, uh, Catherine said, technically, if someone's designed your logo and you haven't received the copyright for it or there's no ter- nothing in the terms of conditions, could the um, designer give it to someone else as well? I think te- technically that could potentially happen. I mean, again, there's it, it would start to get horrendously complicated. And I mean, I think there was a case um, where that kind of happened, but the court found in the end that um, there'd been effectively an equitable assignment where um, really the, the kind of, the person who commissioned it was the true owner. Um, so I think it was found in, in the kind of person who commissioned it favour in the end. But again, that's not really a fight that you want to have because um, you don't want to have to go to court if you can help it. No. Um, so really the best thing, if, if that has happened, is just to say, you know, drop them line and just say, can I just get it, you know, the ownership transferred over? That'd be great. Um, you know, we like I said, we can get a short form agreement drawn up, um, which just says, you know, we've agreed, this is fine. And then you've just got that piece of paper that's sorted and you've got that ownership, which is just easier if you can have it. It's all about sleeping well at night, isn't it, I suppose? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, Joe uh, had a particular issue with uh, another groomer. Um, <clears throat> she's canine transformation, transformations and another groomer 
um, 15 miles away, he sets up K9 underscore, uh, K underscore nine transformations and um, refused to change it. So Joe had to go down the trademark route. And once the trademark was registered, the uh, the groomer in question did change her name. So, you know, that was probably a bit expensive for Joe to have to go down that route and register a trademark, but it did prevent the lady from using that name and taking on further sort of action. So it's a, a good example of getting it done and how it can help your business. Yeah. Just seeing if there's any more. I think we've almost covered them all. You obviously, you know, you do this day in, day out, but you you must enjoy it because you, you're so yeah. sort of like, it's just like really exciting. And then, you know, it's bringing all these questions to my head. It's like, yeah, what about this and what about that? And it's, it's obviously uh, an interesting topic and you must go through so many accounts and the internet searches and paperwork. Oh, a lot of it. I mean, the internet, I um, I think sometimes IT must just be thinking, what the hell are you looking at now? Um, what I quite like is, you know, we all have those Google cookies, like mm-hmm. kind of um, the profile that it thinks um, and you get all the kind of sponsored ads and stuff. Mine are just all over the place. Uh, mine cannot profile me because, you know, one minute I'll be looking at tires, the next I'll be looking at makeup, the next I'll be looking at, you know, machinery. It has no idea what's going on because I'm just having to look at all these different businesses all the time. Yeah. So you must like get to know all, all these different businesses. And I suppose you could say every day is different, isn't it? Because you never know what's going yeah. to come across your desk and and uh, who you're going to be helping. So Exactly. You know, this question of trademarking has been going, the group's been going since December and the question of trademarking sort of pops up every sort of uh, couple of times a week sometimes. So it's fantastic to have this interview with you and hopefully we've put some real sort of facts out there so that people can get some clear sort of ideas as to what the process is, why you need to do it and how you need how to do it. So thank you very much for, for spending quite a bit of time with us and uh, do that with us. Just let us know again whereabouts you're working and how people can get hold of you if they want to come and speak to you a bit more about trademarking their business. Yes, yeah, so um, I'm at Barker Patel. Um, so you can either find me on the Barker Patel website, um, which uh, I think maybe I, I've given you a link or I can drop yeah. you a link afterwards. Um, I've also got a Twitter account, uh, which is at Becky underscore not underscore IP, um, where you can find me as well. So, you know, if you want to drop me an email or, or send me a kind of message on Twitter, then, you know, either of those things uh, work well. And um, also something just worth knowing, you know, is that because I'm a chartered trademark attorney, that which is, you know, our, our regulated body, um, there is the SIPMAR, so Chartered Institute Trademark Attorney website, where you can find trademark attorneys as well. I'm on that also. Um, but, you know, if you know my website and uh, Twitter, then that's going to be the quickest thing. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. We'll put all that in the comments and then when it goes over to YouTube and that, we'll put it all in the in the bio so people can definitely reach out to you and get some sound advice and maybe look at trademark in their business.